Welcome back to the Comics Course. Uh, I am ongoing your uh, suffering Professor Hamby here with my ever oppressed uh, T.A. Rowan. Say hello, Rowan. Hello. We are an offering of Miskatonic University's remote education program, an offering of graphical literature. What, bleh, bleh, bleh. <laughs> literature to zero nine <laughs> graphical literature and society and history. We're a we're a little bit punch drunk at this point. It's been a long day, folks. Uh-huh. Um, and we've been bad about posting lately, so we're trying to catch up. Uh-huh. Uh, I did have somebody ask me, well, what's going on with you know some of the people uh, that you've mentioned on the podcast? I I don't know. I haven't heard Thomas. As far as I know, is still in Antarctica. Uh, apparently reading comics to penguins. Uh, I've not heard anything from him in ages. I'm guessing maybe powered, maybe his device died out or something. I did hear that the icebreaker ship was still trying to get to him, but something weird happened and the ship has been declared a national, uh, global health crisis and, uh, they're not allowed to port. So last I heard, you know, they were sailing around somewhere off the tip of, uh, Argentina um, and, uh, Dr. Feckett, it, last I heard, had fled Tijuana because the U.S. was successfully extraditing him and was headed to Belarus. And with things happening as they are in that region of the world, I don't know how that's going to work out. Um, but because of my relationship with him, I don't care either. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's still my boss. Because apparently being a wanted felon from the U.S. government is not enough to lose your position, which, as I've said before, explains a lot about my beloved alma mater. Uh Um, So here I am holding down the fort, being the oppressed proletariat that I am. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And today, the oppressed proletariat is going to talk about... Brumel. Sorry. (laughs) Um, I, I feel like when you say from hell, it needs a more dramatic reading than just saying from hell. It needs to be, you know, from hell. You sound like one of the newspaper guys. A newspaper? How does a newspaper guy sound? <laughs> they print words on paper. <laughs> Tucho sound? <laughs> I don't think so. Anyway. Uh, if you want social media links and all that, it's in the show notes. Rocket, uh, and we're going to talk about chapter three of From Hell today. Maybe we'll see if we can fit in chapter four, depending on how time goes. But it's hard because we're talking about Jack the Ripper, and there's so much to talk about. You know, true crime is popular these days, as we all know. In fact, there's fiction being based on the love of true crime, mm-hmm. um, and this is the granddaddy of true crime stories. I mean. Obviously, there are older true crime stories, but many of them from eras of history, like, say, the 1600s, where we have very minimal information. This was during the explosion of multi-time-a-day newspapers, when people were just thrilled to grab every bit of minutia and publish it. This is the granddaddy of true crime, the first time that we really have so much information and detail about a case. And, of course, what a case it is. A mad phantom escapes the police continuously in the crowded, dirty streets of Whitechapel, you know, viciously murdering women and eviscerating them. It, it's, it's dramatic. Mm-hmm. 
And here we have Alan Moore's fictionalized version. I want to point that out as we talk about each section of From Hell, that Alan Moore took a lot of effort to do great historical research. The background is absolutely rock solid, but many of the actual events are completely fictionalized in representations of characters such as Dr. Gull and uh, the artist Siskert are completely fictionalized. And that's where we start out here in Chapter 3 with Blackmail or Mrs. Barrett. We are told that it's Cleveland Street, London, August 1888. And we see a woman walking down the street with a child. And it's Marie. Now, Marie is Marianne Nichols. I've waited for this chapter to go more into the detail of at least four of the five canonical Ripper victims. We've talked before about how there was an earlier one that I suspect was a earlier crime by Jack the Ripper as he was escalating his psychopathic behavior. Uh, but we have five canonical victims, and this one, Mary Ann Nichols, is the first. Now, she was born Mary Ann Walker. She's a native Briton, born August 26, 1845. Uh, just off Fleet Street, which is kind of ironic considering Fleet Street was the home of all the newspapers. And at the time of her death, she was guessed to be around 30 to 35. However, it was discovered later at her inquest that she was closer to 45. She was actually very young looking for her age and by many accounts was quite beautiful. Indeed, uh, even in her autopsy, it was mentioned that she kept herself very clean. Hmm. Now, she came from a lower-class, middle-class background. Her father was a blacksmith, perhaps a locksmith. Um, she was often called Polly as a nickname, Polly Nichols. Aww. Uh, she married a man named William Nichols in the 1860s when she was in her early 20s. And that's recorded in the parish records of the Vicar of St. Bride's Parish Church. And like many of the women we're going to talk about, she had a hard life. And ended up in Whitechapel as an alcoholic, working at least part-time as a prostitute. Some of these women also did other jobs, making candles, cleaning houses. I mean, just trying to make ends meet. Mm -hmm. um, and frankly, alcoholism was an escape for many people. I mean, their lives were hard. Just plain hard. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> now, she had had a husband uh, for a while. Her husband was paying support payments to her. However, he went to court and was able to establish that she was working as a prostitute and able to cut off the payments to her. Oh, well, I mean, kind of effectively, she had her own job. Um, there are a number of records of her from the 1880s, as she ended up in workhouses and infirmaries. Hmm. Now, the workhouses for the poor in the 1880s, they were rough places. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you could stay there for a very cheap cost, uh, although it was still more than some people had access to, but it was cheaper than rooms somewhere else. And they might help you find a job if they had one available. But they were very crude. I mean, they, they, and in fact, if I remember correctly, there's a scene of this later in From Hell where one of the characters is in a workhouse and 
they're sitting on this little wooden pew and packed in so tightly with other people that to keep from falling over, that when it's time for sleep, the people maintaining the workhouse take big, thick ropes and tie people to the pews so they so that they can sleep sitting up in a rigid position and not fall over. Mm-hmm. Um, and and these were actually kind of a mercy to people. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're, they're horrible and in many ways inhumane, but as inhumane as they were, better than some other options. And she also ran into the police several times. So, for example, uh, in 1887... She was noted as sleeping in the open at Trafalgar Square, unable to even afford one of these cheap uh, workhouses. And she did some work modeling for the artist Siskert, at least in this fictionalized version. I don't believe there's anything in history to indicate she actually did. Mm -hmm. And she shows up here and from hell at Sir Siskert's abode, bringing with her the child. The royal child, which apparently Gull and the Queen didn't know about, or else they would have hunted it down and destroyed it, probably, or gotten rid of it overseas or something. And the child is sitting on the floor playing with some of the drawings while she confronts Siskert and basically says, oh yeah, I figured it out. I'm not that stupid. I know who your little brother Albert really is. The crown prince, grandson of the Queen, Prince... Albert. Why and, did they call him Albert? Like that's such... Well, it wasn't that odd a name back then. I mean, these days you name somebody Albert and they just get called Al. Um, but back then that wasn't such the case. So she decides to basically dump the kid off with Siskert and say, this kid is your problem now. Damn. And walks out and hooks up with a guy who uses her in an alley uh, for a little bit of money so that she has somewhere to sleep that night. Fair. She tries to kind of... I'm going to be a little crude here, but tries to relieve his pressure between her thighs, but then he's kind of a jerk about it and insists on actually inserting. Um, Which ends up in a discussion with the other ladies in the story uh, who are like, oh, that's so stupid. He could get you knocked up and in a family way. And she's like, well, he insisted, and I wasn't able to trick him. Um, And many of these ladies had children that they no longer see. In several women's cases, their children didn't want anything else to do with them as they descended into alcoholism and a very poor life. Um, And they're, they're pretty tragic figures. And as we see, you know, Polly Nichols, we see her go to a bar where she connects with another one of the canonical Ripper victims. And the reason this little social circle are Ripper victims is something we'll talk about. Now, this is Elizabeth Stride, uh, sometimes called Long Liz. She was not British. She was actually born uh, somewhere in the area of Gothenburg, Sweden. We know that she was baptized there in a church in Torslanda. Uh, I know that one of my regular listeners uh, speaks Swedish natively, so they may correct me on my pronunciations. I apologize. <laughs> um, and on a change of certificate notice that was fall- filed in Sweden, uh, we know that she moved to London. Mm-hmm. And we know that she could actually read tolerably well 
but had very little knowledge of the Bible. But still, with that reading, put her education above that of many other people. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, might have been a Swedish thing. I mean, I know that to this day, Sweden actually offers, you know, free higher education to everybody. You know, because they actually are civilized in that regard. Mm-hmm. Um, in that regard? <laughs> well, the Swedes have their own problems. Mm-hmm. You know, um, unfortunately, many of the problems troubling most first world countries these days, including rise of nationalism and stuff, there are things happening in Sweden, too. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's not that they're uncivilized in those regards, unlike others. It's just they're in the same boat yeah. with everyone else. Yeah. Um, and this isn't a political podcast, so I'm not going to go into it. But in the modern day, the rise of nationalism is something that I find very concerning. Mm-hmm. So, long Liz, Elizabeth Stride, we know she made some money sewing, charring, uh, she got gift money occasionally, uh, and she worked as a prostitute occasionally. Uh, We know she turned up in the court several times for drunken disorderly conduct, obscene language, that kind of stuff. And we see her here in the story talking with Polly Nichols. And talking about how she misses her home in Sweden so far away and how she feels like uh, she kind of fell down into this depravity in this English hellhole. It's not entirely fair, uh, and and I don't know if Alan Moore knew this when writing it, but she had been picked up and registered as a prostitute before she ever left Sweden. Mm. So this was not entirely a consequence of her life in England, Uh, although she'd had hard knocks in England. That's Mm. certainly true. And as they're sitting there talking, they're talking about the curse. Now, what they mean to the curse is getting knocked up, having a child. Mm-hmm. Which, in their world, would have meant either having the child and this extra complication in their life, or um, having an abortion, which was extremely unsafe. Mm-hmm. And they're... I mean, this is just the reality of their lives. And I'm not going to go into all the details of these women's lives, but several of them are just tragic to the point of being absolutely heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. It's just true. So we move forward in the story. We see carriages moving through the underground. You know, we just recorded 1010 right before this. And the difference between that clean line style of Hergé and here, all this textured cross hatching creating shadow. I mean, it, it's so different. It's, it's just shocking. It's kind of jarring for me right now. It is. It is. It just kind of like makes you go, whoa, man. Sorry, I reverted to California Surfer there for a second. Yeah. Oh, dude. Um, but we see a Nestle's milk sign on the carriage, which kind of, I mean, I know Nestle's was around then, but it's kind of like jarring to see something you think you could still see in a modern context mm-hmm. there. Um, and we see Siskert, who's now taken this little child, um, to her mother's parents and is basically dropping them off. And we have a whole panel here and I I didn't provide a trigger warning early, uh, uh, but it's painful to read. Well, I mean, we find out that she was abused by her father and the child, he thinks the child could be his and... Um, it, it's just, you leave this page 
being ready to just want all of humanity to fall down a sinkhole. It's 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 awful. Um, and Siskert, you look at his face here. I love the art here. As horrible as all the story is here, look at his face in this last panel. So detailed. And with just simple lines, Eddie Campbell has drawn the face of a man who is looking at rock bottom. Mm-hmm. He feels like he cannot fall any further than he's fallen right here. Mm-hmm. Um, and ironically, has only tried to do good. Mm-hmm. Um, but his letting the powers that be know about Albert's secret marriage did cause all these things to happen. So he's guilty mm-hmm. and feels guilt. Now we let's jump to the next page. And one of the things oh, I, I love... love that. Yes, Campbell does this bizarre straight hatching with just these almost erratic straight lines, sometimes fading into white. As he's walking off. Right, and at first you think, is that rain? But then there's no puddles or anything. And it's like... So he's moving from the dark of this house outside where you have this straight hatching. And then it's... The building's just... One panel, you can distinctly see the buildings, the doorways, the ground. Then the next panel, you still see, like, these windows and little lines representing the buildings. But most of the elements are gone and the and the ground is gone. And then in the next one, you just have the lines and they're fading into white. And literally, his world is disappearing in his mind. Mm-hmm. Everything's fading away in this miasma of misery that he's finding himself in. It is a powerful visual representation of his mental state. Mm-hmm. Um, it's absolutely great. And then we jump to the Britannia, which was an actual pub that existed in Whitechapel around the location of the murders at the time. Great little bit of uh, uh, historical research on Moore's part. And we return to Polly Nichols and Elizabeth Stride sitting around chatting. And while they're sitting around chatting, they are joined by an additional two parties. Now, these are two more of the five canonical Ripper victims. So we now have four of the five canonical Ripper victims in one place chatting. Um, Now, we don't know if any of these ladies really knew each other in history. Mm -hmm. We don't, in fact, know if any of them went to the Britannia. But it is, in fact, very possible that they did, at least on some level. But here they're represented as being very knowledgeable of each other. Now I'm going to talk about these other two real quickly. Uh, One of them is Annie Chapman, who was also known by a bunch of pseudonyms, especially Dark Annie. And she had a very tragic history as well. Um, She was married. She had multiple sisters. Uh, Lord, I, I don't even know where to begin. Um, she had multiple children, and her life was very hard. She uh, was married for 24 years, I think, and separated and rejoined her husband over and over until basically the point where her alcoholism and other problems caused him to no longer be willing to interact with her. Mm. And the other figure is Mary Jane Kelly, who again had a bunch of Pseudonyms, uh, Marie Jeanette, Kara Kelly, Fair Emma, etc. 
She was about 25 years old when she died. She was one of the youngest of the canonical victims. And again, pretty tragic habits. Um, she was said to have spoke fluent Welsh. She probably came from Wales, I'm assuming. Uh, she was one of the quieter members of the little group. She did not have much of a criminal history, if any. Uh, she was known to be a fairly sober habits, but when she got in the drink, could change. And in the comic here, they also mentioned the Nichols gang. This is not to be confused with Polly Nichols. Um, this is an interesting little bit of history. Uh, we know the Nichols gang were a gang of thugs at the time, and they often shook down women uh, and other people for money, and including prostitutes. Mm. And in fact, when the murders first happened... Many police thought that it was a result of the Nichols gang assaulting people. Mm -hmm. And indeed, they had assaulted, uh, shortly before, several other women. However, what they didn't do was the grotesque genital mutilation or, stu or, or evisceration of the stomach and all that. Mm -hmm. So, it, it really is unlikely the Nichol Nichols gang had any association with the Ripper murders, unless it was one of them who... Went rogue. At, and was just psycho, you know. Um, but as they sit there and talk, they're talking about needing money and they need protection from the Nichols gang. And, of course, our uh, character, who knew about the royal wedding, says, I've got something that could be sold. Information. And hatches a plan to blackmail Siskert for money. For them. And they refer to themselves as the four whores of the apocalypse. Hmm. And they don't... I mean, the apocalypse, of course, uh, is something that people misconstrue all the time. They say it's the end of the world. In the Bible, it is actually the ultimate um, winning of good versus evil. And, of course, our bad guy of this story sees his mission as a holy mission of good. And these women that he has to kill, indeed, as harbingers of evil and bad. Now, the Four Horsemen are also something that's misunderstood a lot in commentary, but I'm not going to get into all that right now. And as the storyline goes on, we see where the note is delivered to Siskert, and he has to try to figure out what to do about it. And I absolutely love this final panel of chapter three, where Siskert is sitting there covering his face with his hand in the dark, and we see some of the drawn sketches and paintings of women there. Yeah. Just gorgeous. very evocative. So chapter four. Chapter four is a difficult read. It is titled, What Doth the Lord Require of Thee? I'm not going to get into the biblical reference here. Um, again, if I went into every reference and I went really into the detail that this probably deserves, um, each chapter would be like a three, four hour long podcast. I'm trying to keep it shorter than that. But we see Siskert is visiting the royal family and he's delivering the blackmail note. And he's like, I don't have the money. I, You know, people think artists are rich, 
but we have money for a little while after we sell a painting, and then we may not have money again for a while. And the royal family takes it to the queen. This is another way, you know, this is made up. You know, honestly, if if the royal family uh, back then were to arrange the murders of a bunch of prostitutes in Whitechapel, they would not take it to the queen and get her implicated. It would be handled, you know, more discreetly. So if they get caught, she wouldn't be in hot water. Right. And it just wouldn't need her attention. Uh, but this is how it happens in the story, which is all fictionalized. Mm -hmm. And they take it to the queen, and the queen basically is like, Who's my fixer? I'll call Gull. You know, you know, today's world we have better call Saul. Back then they had better call Gull. <laughs> Gull. Um, you know, because who's a better fixer for, you know, taking care of whores in Whitechapel than a, than a septuagenarian doctor from the best neighborhood in London? Right? Something ain't adding up here. It's silly. It's ridiculous. Um, but it makes for a fun story. Yeah. And, and the story is really just a vehicle for Moore's commentary. So it works fine. Um, because his commentary involves essentially how the upper class fucks everyone. Yeah. Um, which I'm tempted to go off onto a, a discussion about the word bourgeoisie and how it ended up in global conversations because of Karl Marx's writings, which were in German, but used the French term. But that's a whole other discussion. So as we go into the next few panels... One of the things that's fascinating here is the extreme use of white. Mm -hmm. And the lack of defining panels. Event just bleeds into event. And, except at the top of each page where we see a carriage with a defined border around that panel. Now the carriages become super important as the story goes on. Because the carriage is the means of transporting. I made a joke about you know, a septuagenarian, because uh, Gull's in like his 70s. And we know, in fact, that he was of poor health. How could he commit these murders? Well, one of the uh, commentaries made by people is, oh, well, I mean, you do it in secret and hide it, and you don't have to be in great health or of great strength because you have a carriage to carry you around in. And that's part of the premise used. And there's some more explanation in here about how it could have happened. Now, he has royal resources put at his disposal, and he ends up with a carriage driver and carriage that we were introduced to earlier. The same carriage driver, Netley, who was driving around Prince Albert with the artist Sisker. So he knows of these events to some degree. And Netley's a very basic but ambitious soul, he wants to help. He wants to rise in the ranks of those who are trusted by powerful people. Mm -hmm. But gets in over his head. Now, I said earlier this was a hard chapter to read. It, a little bit of it is the themes, but this chapter is actually hard to read because it's very cryptic. Most of this chapter is Gull driving around the city with Netley... And randomly, seemingly randomly, telling him, go here, now go here, now go here, now take this road. And providing 
page after page after page commentary about the architecture of London. You're looking at me weird. What the fuck? Well, this is because... What was Alan Moore eating? Well, Alan Moore was doing it because the history of London in many ways is built into its buildings. Mm-hmm. The history of London is a g- bunch of giant penis statues. Mm-hmm. Basically, and, and what I mean by that is, as people went along, they said, I am Lord Albert of Cromwell. I don't know why I just did an Indian accent for an old <laughs> British guy. I don't know. It just popped in there. Whatever. I'll roll with it. I am Lord Albert of Cromwell. God, it's kind of a racist Indian accent. I'm sorry, guys. Well, it's not really racist. I I just don't know how to do a better one. I'll just drop it. Um, (laughs) I'm Lord Albert of Cromwell. Mm -hmm. I'm rich. I'm Uh educated. I'm amazing. Mm -hmm. I know that I'm a man. Because I have so much money that women tell me that all the time. And to prove what a man I am, because I want people to know I have a huge penis even after I'm dead, mm-hmm. I'm going to build a bunch of buildings and name them after me. Mm-hmm. And there will be statues to me. And there will be dedications to me. And people will walk along and go, I don't know who that guy was, but I'll bet he was a stud. <laughs> um, I broke my TA, folks. I broke you on that one, didn't I? I was keeping it together till then. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, carry on. But, I mean, in in many ways, the history of London is encoded in these statues to ego. Yeah. Um, And not just statues, but uh, uh, cathedrals, uh, uh, graveyard monuments, all kinds, things that just sit in the middle of random streets. That cabbies probably now drive around, you know, the monolith on such and such street. Mm-hmm. But actually has a convoluted history of this guy who was the Freemasons and inscriptions at the bottom invoking, you know, obscure Freemason philosophy and stuff. And this is the stuff Goal is talking about as they drive around. Mm-hmm. And it's not just buildings. This is this is the part you have to understand. Many of these people were also powerful politicians. They funded the arts. Some of them were artists themselves. So this history of ego-stroking construction also bleeds over into the political, social, and cultural history of England in all kinds of ways. And Alan Moore treats this as a buffet of obscure connectivity that he's just shoveling in his mouth and feeding out to us like crazy. And so I don't want to go over all of it. Um, But we're given this driving tour of London as he talks about this stuff. And he talks about the history of London and the history of England. And I'll read some of it to you. Uh, Uh... So they're driving along, and Gull is eating grapes. Remember this, because grapes come up again in the story. And he says, Do you begin to grasp now the truly great work that is London? A veritable textbook we may draw upon in formulating great works of our own. 
will penetrate its metaphors. They bear its structures and thus come at last upon its meaning. As befits great work, we'll read it carefully and with respect. And then Netley says, uh, with respect, sir, I can't read. Oh, Netley, Netley. Netley, Netley, Netley. What are we going to do with you? Proceed by Essex Road. To Balsman Road, and then to London Fields. I take it street signs aren't beyond your literary grasp? Oh, no, sir, I reads them right enough. Splendid. By chance, our lesson for today requires of you no further scholarship. No greater part of London's story is not written in words. It is instead a literature of stone, of place names, and associations, where faint echoes answer back from off the distant ruined walls of bloody history. Uh, turn right by Greenwood Road, as far down as <laughs> Albion Drive, then stop. Albion Drive! T'would seem auspicious in that we aspire to probe the ventricles of London, England's heart. Um, <laughs> Turn right. Sorry, total shift entirely provided by me. Um, no, but the page kind of looks like it would, though. I know, right? <laughs> and you just kind of imagine Goal sitting there, deep in his emo phase. You know, this is this is a seventy-two-year-old doctor who's like listening to Morrissey and The Cure, um, and then and then snaps out of it to give directions, and then goes right back to it. This is what I'm imagining. Sorry, I gotta interject some laughter into a story about murder and blackmail. Um, but but he himself is saying this. You know, this is a story of literature written in stone, and we're talking about a Freemason conspiracy here. Now, the Freemasons are uh, 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 idealizing a history of masonry, of architecture, of building. They believe that the great builder is a metaphor for acting in the role of God. God created the universe, and now they're creating society mirroring God. That is a holy work. Uh, and they idolize the builders. So, of course, their great works they make as buildings. Mm-hmm. And he's drawing these elaborate connections. I, I literally could spend 12 hours just talking about all the references in this chapter. It is it, 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 it is varied. I almost said deep, but it's actually not deep. It's actually in many ways extremely superficial. And, and of course, this is actually Alan Moore making fun of it. He's building this elaborate mythology in Gull's mind that real that only superficially makes sense. This is the same kind of superficial conspiracy stuff that feeds, you know, your crazy Uncle Herman, who at Thanksgiving is telling everybody about the black helicopters that are coming to take away, you know, loyal people uh, because Obama doesn't want them to have their guns. Obama's not in office anymore, folks, by the way. Um, you can you can start blaming somebody new for that. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're okay with blaming a new white guy. Right. Uh and yeah, Alan Moore is simultaneously, I think, having an incredible amount of fun with this while making fun of it. Um, but but it, it, 
and he touches on so many stuff that there there's a a, a bias in mm-hmm. human beings. You know, you over flood them with information. You over flood them with connections, however tangential they are. And there's a bias that can lead even reasonably intelligent people to start going, oh, there's something here. You know, sometimes a lot of connections are just a lot of connections. They happen because we live in a world with a lot of possible connections. Uh, It doesn't mean that there actually is some sort of conspiracy. You know, even if they end up in a field where, you know, a, a legend dairy uh, poet is buried next to an obelisk with Egyptian origins. Which happens when they reach London Fields. Um, they go to the grave of William Blake, where there is an Egyptian-style obelisk. And they talk about, oh, you know, Blake considered you know, the sun, the imagery of Satan, and yet there's a sun obelisk here. And da, 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 da. And Blake was an interesting figure. Um, Blake was a poet, and Blake will come up again in this story. Blake was heavily involved in mysticism. In many ways, Blake was one of the first major nationalist voices. uh, And a complicated figure to talk about in England's cultural history in some ways. But, this is all superficial BS here. (laughs) And they just keep going and going and going. Uh, with some beautiful architecture uh, from Eddie Campbell, by the way. Just yeah. gorgeous in places. Oh, it looks so realistic. I know. It's amazing. And so what Goal is doing, they even stop for a meal. What Goal is doing is a ritual in his mind. Wow, that first... Uh, sorry, that start. Sorry to interrupt this for a second. No, 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 go ahead. But that first page looks almost like a black and white picture. It's so realistic. I know. It's amazing. I love it. Um, and, and, you know, it's easy to talk constantly about uh, Alan Moore's writing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I don't think Eddie Campbell gets enough credit for his art. Yeah, it's gorgeous. And it really fits the mood and the theme. And really gets you more invested in what's going on and, and absorbed. And his style, he, he will jump from such realistic architecture with famous buildings here mm-hmm. to incredibly simple art that's almost surreal in its simplicity to communicate mood and then jump back again. But it's not jarring. He's really good at not making it feel jarring. Right, it just flows. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, they stop for a meal. Goal has this just disgusting, almost raw... Uh, kidney meat. And of course, kidneys were missing from some of the victims. Mm -hmm. And this is foreshadowing of that. Mm -hmm. And Gull is essentially driving around London doing a ritual. He is invoking this Freemason ideology, visiting places of mystic import and cultural import to Freemasons. And in his mind, he's doing this for London. He may be a doctor, But he's an architect of England. By murdering these people, by suppressing the secrets, he is helping build a strong, powerful future England. Which is one of the reasons he stopped at Blake's first, one of the first nationalists. And he's drawing on the history of London to, in his mind, justify and fuel the murderous activities that are going to come up. 
He is combining in his mind these assassinations for what he sees as a better future England, a more civilized future England. Um, as an act, and in his mind, they're an act of construction. Mm-hmm. He's mm-hmm. building. And so he wants to visit the other buildings of the great Freemasons. Uh-huh. This is a very simplistic representation, but it is, in fact, what's happening. And, in fact, we see him smiling at one point as they drive in the rain. Um, and he says, as he's doing it, symbols also signify the female power within humanity. Unfettered by its ring of stars that are but distant suns and therefore masculine. Symbols have power, Netley. Power enough to turn a stomach such as yours. Or to deliver half this planet's population into slavery. Down Denmark Hill, towards Hearn Hill, then stop. So he's thrilled. I mean, he sees this as a ritual to help oppress women and put them back in their rightful place as slaves for men. Um, perhaps by creating terror in them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, the truth is that uh, these attacks did target women and did scare them. Mm-hmm. Um, and that this was intentional, that he could have done this probably in some more discreet way, but he wanted to do this to create terror to scare them, Mm -hmm. uh, showing this psychopathic tendency. And then he just continues to keep going, visiting these landmarks. Yeah, I know there were stories told about around the Jack the Ripper time and around the first few murders of prostitutes deciding to stop going out at night. Right. To avoid possibly being the next one. And to band together. Mm -hmm. And lots of sticking groups after that. Yep. And then as they reach the end of their travels, he takes this map that he's had and he's been marking places where they've stopped. And Netley's confused about all this. Because Netley's perfectly willing to help kill a bunch of prostitutes. Especially if it improves his standing in the world. But he's a very simple soul. And, you know, he says, I don't understand all this stuff. You've said all this stuff. I don't get it. And Goal says, well, let's lay out the map and take all these places that we stopped at. And here's a ruler. Let's draw lines. And it unveils a pentagram, which freaks Netley out and seems unchristian to him. Mm. So he runs outside and throw, ends up throwing up. Um, but he's in too deep and can't get away from this. And then our final page is this grand oh, shot of London. Beautiful. Under the moon, dark, but lit up by all these lights. I and love the way he does the sky with the sketching. Right. And, and Goal... The panel before says, You see? Your destiny's inscribed upon the streets wherein you grew. Upon the horse you ride each day. You cannot change your mind. Our stories written netly, inked in blood, long dry, engraved in stone. And the engraved in stone is the uh, line put under this big shot of London. That London's history is blood and the future will be blood. And of course, part of the theme that Moore is building on is that this is a turning point in history and that the twenty that this is the the where the twentieth century starts, as the generations that determine the actions of the twentieth century, including the first and then second world wars, are being born about this time. Mm-hmm. Um 
and that if the future is blood, I'm sorry, if the past is blood, and the future is being determined by blood, that it's just going to be a future of murder and pain. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is Alan Moore's contention it is. And Alan Moore, uh, I know he's a contentious figure to some. He's done stuff that some of his supporters have tried to dignify as artistic literary erotica with erotic elements. Let's just be blunt, folks. He's he's crazy. He's written porn. Hmm. Um, this is not unheard of. You know, people don't talk about it. Um, but Neil Gaiman has written porn. Hmm. Uh, I, and I'm not talking about erotica. You know, I'm talking about porn. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, in fact, he wrote a story for Larry Welts uh, uh, for Cherry Pop-Tart that is just pure porn. There is no artistic literary merit to it in any way, shape, or form. Mm-hmm. And Neil Gaiman was very proud of it. <laughs> he didn't do this when he was a poor struggling writer. He did it actually at the height of his fame. Because he wanted to. And he loves comics, and it was his comic porn. Okay. Um, and he did it to also uh, for the sales to help contribute to the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund. And he's been very upfront in saying that while he doesn't generally write erotic content, he thinks it's perfectly legitimate art. And so does Alan Moore. Uh, And by the way, Alan Moore and Neil Gaiman have, I don't know if they stay in touch, but historically have been good friends. Hmm. Um, In fact, Alan Moore helped Neil Gaiman get his start in comics Hmm. by showing him how to write a comic book script. And one of Alan Moore's contentions has always been that one of the great misjustices of the industrial age going forward was the mistreatment of women. Mm-hmm. Um, I agree with this. Well, it's hard not to agree with it if you look at history. It's just yeah. true. It, it, it's, it's just it's, true. It's basically written out for you. Not basically, it is. Mm-hmm. I mean, we know this. Um, so it, it's not surprising that when he talks, is, is doing a story about the horror of the future, mm-hmm. that how half the female, half the human population is being treated is, of course, going to be a component of this. Mm-hmm. And so, in many ways, these women, uh, these victims of Jack the Ripper, are more stand ins for how women are treated and how sexuality is used to oppress them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we will pick up on that when we go into chapter five. The Nemesis of Neglect. I want to get one back to that big portrait painting. You want to look at that again? Yeah. I love how everything's in pure black except for the lights in the sky. I think it's so simplistic and pretty. Yeah, and this weird hatching he does in the sky that's not like wind blowing. It's back and forth. And I think represents that sort of curling of smoke and disturbed sky. Uh That would have existed above industrial London. And then even though the city is in pure black other than the lights, you can still see lots of details. And you can see, still clearly tell its buildings and streets and the tops of Right. The, the structure of the lights is very precise. They're not random little dots. Mm-hmm. You can see sort of the, the layout of buildings slanting with the land there. Uh-huh. It, it's dramatic. Yeah. And wonderful. It's simplistic, but still feels so complicated. Yep. Sorry, that's all. No, there's nothing to apologize for. for. I like your commentary. So, we're close to the 50-minute mark. Mm -hmm. 
We're going to close off this now. Uh, we'll return with the Nemesis of Neglect next chapter. Uh, maybe a couple chapters next time we pick up from hell. So until then, keep reading comics. Bye. Bye.